So last time we were in Nehemiah a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had just concluded chapter 4, and we may have been tempted to believe that having raised the walls to half its height, having defended against the initial attacks of uh, the enemy, that all would be well with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But in actual fact, we see in chapter 5, that isn't so. They had managed to control and contain the external threat, but they had not dealt with the notion that there was something about to creep upon them, something that was about to unleash on them. And what was to come from a surprising source, namely from within their own ranks. Now, in the reading of chapter 5, we may also be tempted to believe that this is a remote chapter. It's far removed from our own circumstances. But a more careful reading points out that it is actually a very contemporary chapter because it has to do with taxes and loans and money and status and the effect those things have on our lives as individuals. But more importantly, the effect these things have upon us is the household of faith. And how apropos then, indeed how providential it is, that we should come upon this chapter during Stewardship Month. So I would like for us to gather our thoughts under three main points as we move through the text. First, we'll consider how the problem surfaced in verses 1 through 5, and then the need to hear the cry for help. We'll then consider how the problem was solved in verses 6 through 13 by responding to injustice with righteous anger, careful contemplation, and direct confrontation. Finally, we consider how Nehemiah's example of integrity and generosity calls us as Christians to lead by example. Okay, so let us consider how the problem surfaced. In verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people. We see later on that the people recount the desperate situation they find themselves in brought about by famine, taxes, and the greed of their fellow countrymen. And now there are three cries, and there are three groups crying out for help here. The first is the team of laborers who came from all over Judea to do the work on restoring the walls. Many live at subsistence levels, and they depend on daily earnings to get by. And they complained against the other Judeans who apparently are unwilling to share the food with them and help them in their very time of need. Their neighbors fail to realize that if they're not going to go to Jerusalem to participate in in the work of rebuilding the wall, it's their responsibility to support the families that go and do that work. It's akin to our responsibility today to support those who go to do the work of missions. Not everyone can go but all must support. Some go while the rest need to support those who do go. And these families desperately need the support of their fellow countrymen. They need food. The second group who complain to Nehemiah are the landowners who are now having to mortgage their properties to buy food. Making matters worse is the famine that apparently has been going on for some time. In other words, they tell Nehemiah, do you know how many times we've had to 
put up our knickknacks, that we are selling stuff and heirlooms and jewelry and furniture. We're putting all our stuff on Facebook Marketplace just so we can make a couple bucks to feed our children. The third group are in similar straits, but for different reasons, because of the king's taxes. And the taxes are so excessive that these landowners have borrowed money to pay their taxes. But now they're finding it impossible to pay off their loans. Many resorted to subjecting their children to slavery to help pay off the loans, which had interest of anywhere between 20 and 50%. Imagine if you had your credit card, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Black Card, if you got it. 50%. Maybe you wouldn't shop on Amazon Prime as often as you do. They're not able to redeem their children from slavery because they had no more assets. Even worse, their daughters may have been taken by creditors to be prosecuted as payment for these loans. These were desperate straits. And so an outcry came to Nehemiah. And, and notice the outrage and offense here. The people say, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, though our sons are as good as their sons, yet on the basis of finance, on the basis of socioeconomic status, on the basis of how much capital we have access to, we are forced to sell our children into slavery. Verse 5 is a summation of their situation. It is not in our power to help it. We are powerless, they exclaim. Our sons and daughters are being carted off to slavery, and we're powerless to do anything about it. Do you see the desperation? We're unable to do anything because everything we have, we are mortgaged up to our eyeballs and beyond. And the bankers, are they're repossessing all our stuff, even our own flesh and blood. But didn't our kids used to play with their kids? Do not their, the same blood run within our veins? Nehemiah, this ain't right. This is an injustice. So we see the problem. How does Nehemiah respond? What is he going to do? Well, verse 6 tells us his immediate reaction. I was very angry. This is our second point. Nehemiah responds with righteous indignation. The Bible says in James, in your anger, do not sin. And it tells us it's possible to be angry and not sin. But as you and I know, not by a lot, right? In my case, I, I, I don't even think it's 5%. Maybe, maybe 1% of the time, my anger is righteous. 99% of the time, it's unrighteous. Most of my anger is selfish. Kind of righteous anger, as we see here in verse 6, is anger that takes offense to the injustice that is visited upon God's people. It takes offense at that which offends God's glory, that which denies God's law, that which is harmful to God's people. I mean, we see that 
In Mark chapter 3, as we read into your hearing earlier, we read of Jesus being in the synagogue. And there, there's a man with a shriveled hand. Now, shriveled is not supposed to be an adjective for hand. You can have shriveled prune or shriveled leather, but shriveled hand. You're not supposed to have a shriveled hand. Here is a man in the descriptive, really, that tells us he's a man to be pitied. And anybody with a modicum of humanity is going to look at this man in his condition and feel bad for him. But there are people in that synagogue who didn't feel bad. Instead, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. You see somebody in desperate straits, and instead of responding with compassion, you say, well, it must be their fault that they got to that place. And Jesus, seeing and hearing their thoughts, was angry. He asked, what then is lawful to do on Sabbath? To do good or evil? To save life or to kill? And they, they had no answer. At least they were smart enough to remain silent. Then Jesus looked at them in anger. In anger. What was Jesus concerned? Why was he angry? His concern was for God and his glory. And these offensive people who were dragging it down. And that is exactly the response of Nehemiah in verse 6. Righteous indignation. But righteous indignation is followed by careful contemplation. We see there in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. What charges? Well, the, the charges that, that had been alleged in verses 2 through 5. These were charges brought, and he pondered these charges. His concern was both controlled and constructive. He, he didn't launch into a speech that he's going to later regret. There's a lesson for many of us there. Sometimes, in that 1%, we get the anger right, right? The righteous anger. But then we sin as soon as we open our mouths. Because, because we don't take time to think about the fact that there is reason to be righteously offended. There is every reason to be offended by the abortion scandal of our nation. There is every reason to be angry at the ongoing evil of racism, systemic and individual in our country. But there is no reason to become offensive to those who are only different from us because the grace of God has not transformed their lives. It is righteous indignation that this is wrong, that this should not be happening to our children in the womb or our children in the streets. But it is sin to burn abortion clinics to burn and loot businesses, to scream at others, to categorize people into immutable categories of oppressed and oppressor. It is sin. The indignation is righteous, but our response is too often unrighteous. And in Nehemiah's case, though, 
He did both right. He got really angry, and then he got hold of his anger as he contemplated the charges. Righteous indignation, careful contemplation, and then direct confrontation. I took counsel of myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. There, there's something refreshing about this. It's often said that if you're going to be a good leader, a nice leader, you can't go around being accusatory, right? If you're going to be a nice man and lead God's people, you can't just go around accusing the people. Well, it, it is well taken that you shouldn't go around talking smack to people, right? But there will be times, can I submit to you, there, there, there will be times when you've got to directly confront some things. I mean, think about how much confusion is caused in the church today because people avoid direct confrontation. Can, can, can I be plain for a moment? They, instead, they go and tell 50 other people about the problem rather than address the problem with the person at the source. And, you know, they, they say, well, I, I don't want to hurt her or harm him, so I'm not going to say it to their face. I'm just going to say it to 20 other people, and then they'll hurt her. You know the hurt that's caused by that kind of stuff? It's far greater than just confronting it head on. You're a leader. You got a problem with someone in your missional community. You got a situation in your study group at school. You got a badly behaved coworker at your job. Well, tomorrow morning, first thing, tell that person straight to his or her face. Can I challenge you? Think about it this afternoon. Pray about it tonight and confront it head on tomorrow. Now look here. What does Nehemiah accuse them of? I said to them, you are exacting interest. Other versions says you're exacting usury. That means they are charging exorbitant levels of interest. I mean, to charge interest was wrong. To charge it at this level was really wrong. I mean, they were treating their fellow Jews the way the loan sharks tied with the mafia. You remember back in the day? How they treated people. You didn't want to live in New York City back in the 80s and early 90s. Or, or, or really, more contemporarily, the way that payday loans, right, treat low-wage workers today. Presumably, these characters were sitting around congratulating themselves, at least until they were confronted by Nehemiah. They were sitting in the rooms in the corner of the country club, smoking cigars, eating and dining on fresco as they looked over the walls that were being rebuilt. They had flat screens all around them. The Wall Street Chiron was going on. They say, oh man, it's bad times out there. There's a famine and everything in Jerusalem, but not for us. We got, we've got to keep the credit markets going. We're too big to fail. The economy depends on us. It's a nasty business, but somebody's got to do it. But they were doing it to their very own. They were supposed to be a family. And there were rules for the family. 
God had laid down his law. The way God's people were to relate to one another when it comes even to these financial issues. And it would seem in verse 7 that there was no reaction to Nehemiah's initial statement. And so he calls an assembly. And in verse 8 he says, listen, listen, listen. Historically, you will remember that our Jewish brothers were already enslaved to the Gentiles. You'll remember too that we expended a significant amount of cash to redeem them from slavery. Now think about it. You're selling your brothers and sisters back into the same slavery from which we redeemed them. How now, Sway? Where they do that at? And you're repeating the cycle again. Now up to this point, Nehemiah is pointing all this out without making any value judgment. But then in verse 9, he makes this judgment. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. I don't have the time this morning to go through the Old Testament references in Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus, but you can take my word for it and then be good Bereans and check it for yourself later. But what laid behind the statement, the thing you're doing is not good, is God's law against lending money to a fellow Jew in charge of interest, as well as the law against enslaving your fellow Jew. And it's on the basis of this law that Nehemiah says to them, what you are doing is not good. But the great problem in our culture today is that it is completely unacceptable for anyone to stand and say, what you're doing is not good. The response of our postmodern world is, well, well, that may not be good for you, but it's good for moi. Because good or right is on a sliding scale. No one believes in a right right or a true truth or in any absolute standard anymore. Anyone who suggests such a thing is the enemy of tolerance. But we see here in Nehemiah that it is on the basis of the absolute standard of truth that a whole nation is established, that culture is developed, that even economic infrastructure is formed because the ability to enjoy the stability of civilized society is posited upon the notion that the law of God will have an impact in the rule of men. But as soon as you remove God's law from any societal structure, then you have chaos and you have injustice. So the people of God had the law of God, but they chose to ignore the law of God. So Nehemiah judges them and says, the thing you are doing is not good. But strangely enough, though, Nehemiah starts to exhort them in verse 9. He says, listen, listen. Ought you not ought to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? In other words, they are looking at us, y'all. 
mean, we've been fighting off these people, the Astadites and the Ammonites and all these other little ites and all these, and, they, and they're saying, they're saying, we're doing the work of God, building the walls, but you're doing the very same thing to your brothers and sisters. And the nations of our enemies are looking over the wall and scorning us. They're no different from us. They do the same thing we do. See, when your non-Christian friends, your neighbors, and your, and, and your co-workers, and your clients, when they start to confuse your actions, your activities, with your other unbelieving friends, You've got a problem. When they come to you for relationship advice and work advice, and your advice is no different from what they will get from the Dear Abby column, you've got a problem. When the outside world looks to the church and says they've got nothing to offer, because look at what they do to one another. Abuse scandals and cover-ups. Hashtag church too. Political partisanship and division, ethno-racial animosity and rancor, misinformation, conspiracy theories. Truth is just as relative based upon your partisan leanings as it is out there in the world. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. Because what do we have to offer? If we're doing the exact same thing, perhaps even worse, we've got a problem. Just like the people in our text had a problem. But Nehemiah appeals to them. He doesn't condemn them. He says, listen, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? After all, he says in verse 10, I've been lending stuff to the people, but without asking for interest. He says, we've we, we need to stop charging interest. We're going to have to start giving things back. We're going to have to start thinking gifts and grants instead of credits and loans. And so he gives them the instruction in verse 11. Give back the fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and the houses and the, and the percentage of money, of grain, of wine, of oil that you've been exacting from them. Give it all back. And what were the nobles and officials' response? Verse 12, they said they will give it all back. And, hey, we won't demand anything more from them, and we'll do as you say, Nehemiah. And then the second half of verse 12, he takes an oath from them. This guy is shrewd, man. I like Nehemiah. Right? He said, all the people come and say, we're not going to do this no more, we promise. Fine, Nehemiah says, okay, okay, hang on for just a moment. And then he brings in the priests. Right? He says, guys, we're going to formalize this promise y'all are making. Maybe they have promised it before, and they never kept their promise. Maybe they had said to their face, oh, yeah, we'll give reparations. Oh, yeah, we'll fix this. Oh, yeah, in fact, we'll, we'll change the laws. But yet, they maintain the same systemic oppressions. And he says, okay, it's good. You say it. Let me bring in the priests. So now, I'd like for all of y'all to stand up here, look out on your brothers and sisters, and say it to their faces. All right, all right, come on, come on. Let, let's all have you line up on the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, come on up here and do the, let's all do the oath together. 
And so they, they take the oath in front of the priests and everyone else. And, they, and then Nehemiah starts to do something strange. He starts to dance around. He starts to dance around in front of them. He starts to act out a symbolic curse. And he takes his robes and he, and he starts shaking his robes. And he shakes it and he shakes it. And the people are like, what is going on with this dude? Like, what? Are we, are we, are we, are we about to get, like, down? Are we about to dance out here? No, he starts to shake up, and he says, listen, you made a promise, you made an oath, and now I'm speaking a curse to seal the oath. He says, may God shake you out of his household if you do not fulfill what you have promised. May God shake you out and disinherit you from the people of God. May you be cast out and be without a people, and be without a nation, and be without a covenant, and be without a name, be without a God. If you do not keep your promise, see here, the value of responding to injustice with tangible action, and the failure to do so invites the curse of God. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. They praised the Lord, y'all. How, see how injustice, it silenced the voice of praise. And this injustice now had to be confronted by a divine standard. Now, the divine standard penetrated to the very core of them, and they confessed what was wrong, and they promised to put it right, and they understood the enacted curse, and the congregation looked on and said, let it be so, and great joy filled the place. So it is with any curse, with any sin in our lives. Sin robs us of joy. It is a reproach to any people. But righteousness, justice, exalts a nation. Nehemiah here, however, doesn't just respond with righteous indignation, careful contemplation, and direct confrontation. He leads by example as well. That's our third point. As we get to verse 14, we see that Nehemiah has actually been appointed governor of Judah. And it's clear from our text that this position comes with a lot of perks. There's a sizable income from the people. There's a per diem of provisions of various kinds of meats and wine. I mean, Nehemiah is quite wealthy out here. Perhaps the wealthiest member of the community, but unlike the other nobles, and unlike his predecessors in the governorship, Nehemiah doesn't exploit the people or plunder them for his wealth. Instead, he shows compassion to the people of God. He shows empathy. Every day, he's feeding 100 people at his own table. He uses his wealth to bless the people. And why does he do all this? Is it just to show how philanthropic he is? Did he sign on to the billionaire giving challenge? Which way, like, how are you not going to give nothing to your kids when you, I mean, okay. But is it about, is it about a charitable tax write-off at the end of the year? No. Verse 15 says, Nehemiah doesn't take advantage of his position 
and blesses the people from his own table because of the fear of God. This is his motivation. And to fear God is to be in awe of God. It is to obey God. It is to identify with God. It is to value whatever God values and to hate whatever he hates. Nehemiah is a man who fears God. He's not about to make the same mistakes that his predecessors made and be a burden and make a burden to the people of God. Nehemiah conducts himself in a manner that puts community thriving above his financial opulence. And by gener generously feeding the people out of his own pocket, he demonstrates to the other nobles. He leads by example how a godly man of means should be sensitive to the needs of the less fortunate. Nehemiah has wealth, but his wealth doesn't have him. Nehemiah has stuff, but his stuff doesn't have him. What has Nehemiah is a burning desire for removing reproach from the people of God. It is a fervent commitment to bring glory to the name of God. Oh, that we would also burn with such fervor. And there's much to glean from Nehemiah's example in this passage. First, Christians who care about the needs of others, they see the need, they listen to the concern. We don't ignore them. We don't say, well, that don't concern me nothing. Me and mine just good. We got food on our table, clothes on our back, and a roof over our head. But what about your fellow man who is not as fortunate as you? Because true concern for others, true concern for others begins with actually hearing the cry for help. And while, while you may be moved with emotion to that cry, it doesn't stop there. It needs to be accompanied with action. Also, we see that in the spirit of Christ, believers should also actively oppose the exploitation of others, especially the exploitation of fellow believers by other believers. We should not look to cover up abuse in the church. We should not ignore or turn a blind eye to abuse in the church. What, for the sake of our reputation? My goodness, would that the name of Christ be held in such high regard that any abuse, any denigration of any image bearer of God should incite righteous indignation within us. that we should be opposed, actively opposed to exploitation. And, and, and listen here, that opposition needs to be with a desire for reconciliation and restoration, not cancellation. It should be for the glory of God, not self-aggrandizing virtual signaling. But also, to be effective in serving others, we need to practice what we preach. 
If we are to make an impact for the kingdom of God, people must not only hear our message, but they must also see it lived out in our lives. We need to practice what we preach. We must not only hear the cries of injustice, we need to work to respond to it and ameliorate it with generosity. Mark it down here. Just because you share your material possessions doesn't necessarily mean you're a generous person. Let me say it again. Just because you share your material possessions doesn't mean you're actually generous. On the contrary, you can give your money to buy people off, to silence people, to protect your selfishness. You can keep giving everything away and give the things that don't really count. But what counts is your time, your concern, your service. And that's what marked Nehemiah's generosity, the giving not only of his possession, but of himself in service to his fellow countrymen. In verse 16, he talks about he persevered in the work, and all his servants, too, were there for the work. It was his generosity of self, first and foremost, that led to the generosity of material resources. I mean, have you ever noticed there is actually no record of Jesus giving money to people who are in need? All of the riches of the world at his disposal. Yet when the poor and the hungry came to him, Jesus did not give them money. And he rarely gave them food. Instead, Jesus gave them love. He gave them service. He gave them time. And he gave them the greatest gift of all. He gave them himself. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me be clear, y'all. Hear me. Hear me well. Don't go out and say, well, you know, um, Pastor John, Pastor Taylor, uh, Fumi said, I don't got to give. I know it's stewardship month, but, you know, uh, I, I don't really... Money is not what you need. You need my service. Okay, well, listen. God wants you to give money. He wants you to give it cheerfully and intentionally and locally and proportionally and regularly and sacrificially and voluntarily and worshipfully and quietly. <laughs> but the fact that you faithfully pay your tithes and regularly give offerings is not an excuse to cop out of your personal responsibility to Christian service. In fact, in describing the generosity of the churches of Macedonia, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were free willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That is the heart of Christian generosity. Give yourself. Give yourself to God first, then to others. And then you will not have any problem giving of your material resources. And in so doing, in so doing, like Nehemiah, we will be consumed by the fear of God and pursue the glory of God. And all the assembly said, 
Amen. Amen.